This episode of the Proceedings Podcast is brought to you by the members of the U.S. Naval Institute. Our members write, debate, and discuss key issues that ultimately strengthen the Navy, Marine Corps, and Coast Guard. Benefits include a subscription to our award-winning Proceedings Magazine, discounts to over a 1,000 titles from books published by the Naval Institute Press, and graphic novels from Dead Reckoning, a discounted subscription to Naval History Magazine, special invitations to conferences and events, and access to 146 years of archival information such as historic photos, oral histories, and so much more. For more, go to usni.org join. Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach and Marketing. Joining me is my co-host, the Proceedings Editor-in-Chief, Bill Hamlet. Hello, Bill. Hello, Ward. And for our listeners, it, it, it'll be uh, transparent to them, but we're recording this uh, pretty late in the evening, East Coast time, uh, because I think this is the first time we've ever had an international guest. So um, our guest tonight, or today, tomorrow morning, he, he's in the morning, uh, is uh, Z Yang. He goes by Mike. And he's in Singapore, so 8 a.m. his time, 8 p.m. our time. And uh, Z or Mike is the uh, co-author with Captain Jeff Benson of an article in the March issue of Proceedings that's called China's Dual Command at Sea. So, Mike, uh, welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. Great to have you on the show. Great to be here. Yeah, and thanks for uh, for writing this. So, for our readers, um, if you have your... Um, uh, March issue of Proceedings, open up to page 28, 29. That's where the article starts. And uh, I'll just read a little bit of the article, and then we'll get to some Q&A. So on Chinese warships, a military commander and a political commissar serve side by side to achieve both military and political objectives. And then the article goes on to describe the duties of a political commissar in the PLA, Navy and, and the Army as well, all PLA uh, military units at all levels have political commissars. And the opener picture is a great shot of the captain and political commissar of the aircraft carrier Shandong, uh, who are flanking in the picture uh, Chinese President Xi Jinping during the uh, ship's commissioning ceremony a couple years ago. Uh, but Mike, for our listeners, just you know, 30,000 foot just to start off, talk a little bit about political commissars in the Chinese Navy and how that's different from the US Navy or perhaps our allies and partners. So pretty much, you know, before we get into the commissar system, uh, we have to know it's a part of a greater system known as the military political work system uh, in the official Chinese jargon. So compared to the American military that prides itself in being apolitical, uh, the Chinese military actually sees its uh, political and partisan character as sort of like a inseparable part of its identity. Um, so the PLA and its uh, previous incarnations were party-led forces. And even after the People's Republic of China was established in 1949, it may be said that the party army character still precedes the uh, PLA's character as a national army. And it's, uh, this party army character is further emphasized in recent years under the uh, Xi regime. Uh, the PLA obeys the party and the military political work system exists to reinforce the party's leadership of the military via organizational and thought control. So organizational control means, you know, having these party uh, organs and party representatives at all levels of the PLA, uh, while thought control refers to propaganda indoctrination of the troops as well as the officer corps. 
So uh, there's six aspects to military political work. Uh, talk about those for a second, if you would. Uh, so there are six aspects to military political work that the PLA commissars, uh, party committees, as well as the political departments are tasked with uh, carrying out. So uh, the first area is the ideological and cultural construction. This refers to ideological indoctrination, uh, literary and science education, propaganda and uh, organizing sporting and cultural events in the units. And also there's a second area, cadre and organizational work. This refers to building party organs in the unit, building up the party cadre corps, helping with the construction of Communist Youth League. This is the stage where uh, you know they will absorb promising members, uh, promising individuals within the unit into the Youth League first before they're absorbed into the Communist Party. And also, uh, you know, building up this, uh, what they call intra-military democracy in the unit, uh, where they have these soldiers committee, where they could help uh, monitor, uh, especially finances in the unit, to make sure the, uh, the uh, commander uh, is, uh, you know, not, not doing something that's uh, not, not conducting any malfeasance. And also uh, guaranteeing service member benefits. Besides the uh, cadre organizational work, there's also uh, security duties that uh, the political officer have to engage in. Uh, these are pretty much, you know, counterintelligence, counterespionage matters. Uh, public relations is another area, uh, building friendly ties with the masses, liaison with foreign armies, uh, which includes establishing ties with individual officers, uh, pretty much, you know, building a intelligence network in foreign armies, uh, working with reservists and militias and conducting further research on political work. Uh, but last, uh, last but not least, I want to talk a little bit about perhaps the most relevant area that's uh, conducted by these uh, political officers and you know their subordinates, which is political work during uh, military exercises and operations. So these include this includes uh, you know strengthening the party standing committee's unified command of operations, uh, ensuring the central military commission's strategic designs and operational principles are uh, implemented. Uh, also, uh, conducting wartime mobilization and agitation of the troops, uh, conducting three warfares, which uh, in the Chinese jargon refers to public opinion warfare, psychological warfare, as well as legal warfare, and uh, finding ways to cause disintegration of enemy ranks. Also, countering enemy infiltration, uh, side war, attempts to insta instigate a defection, as well as uh, steal confidential information. Uh, also maintaining wartime discipline, as well as uh, coordinating with militias and uh, masses in combat areas, caring for injured combat troops and their families, and uh, last but not least, ensuring humane treatment of POWs. This is a way pretty much to cultivate uh, POW collaborators, as well as get uh, information from POWs. So that's a lot of different you know, mission areas. Does every political commissar do all of those things, or are they kind of divided up depending on the level of the commissar? So in a unit, usually you have uh, commissars and his uh, deputies. And in addition to that, there, there's a political um, department at the regimental level, and there's like something similar, but uh, smaller at the levels below. Uh, regimental levels and above, you have these political departments. They're there pretty much to assist the political commissar in conducting all these things. So it's not just like a one man's job. You know, you got like a whole, whole team of people helping him out. So, Mike, has this been part of the PLA's construct from the beginning? Uh, you know, there, there seems to be, because I'm just thinking about in, in the U.S. Navy, 
we don't have mm-hmm. a political chain of command that works in parallel to the operational chain of command. You know, our system expects that the CO will comply with his oath, right, to, uh, you know, protect and defend the Constitution. Um, mm-hmm. So there seems to be what, it, what the threat is as you were reading uh, or as you were going through the six elements, there's this underlying paranoia. Uh, and so is this just the culture? Is there something about the PLA or the party that demands or that fears that people are always a flight risk? And that's why you can't have the CO be the political officer. You have to have this other guy and this other chain of command that watches the CO. What, what is that all about? Yeah, this is a, this is a great point. Yeah, I, I totally agree with uh, the part about the paranoia. Actually, if we go back into history, we look at the sort of roots of the system in the PLA. It was established after the failed uh, autumn harvest uprising led by Mao. And when Mao and his troops were, you know, pretty much finding a, a retreating into the mountains, everybody keep going AWOL. You know, you, you wake up in the daytime, already a dozen people gone. Next day, already another dozen people gone. And uh, when they get to this village called Sanwan, it's a very small mountain hamlet, Mao's like, okay, we need to change. You know, everybody's leaving. You know, when we get to, uh, you know, deep into the mountains, when we're, when we're safe from the, the KMT troops, nobody will be left. So he um, reorganized his, uh, you know, they called themselves at the time Workers and Peasants Revolutionary Army. When he reorganized his unit, he ensured that you, there's political officers down to the um, company level. So just to make sure the 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 military commander at that unit, he's not going to do anything that's against the party, or he's not going to defect, and uh, they will make they will get to their destination uh, safely. Uh, so, you know, I would say definitely this whole system sort of is, is built on paranoia. You know, and if you compare to the model that they borrow from, the Chinese model is a little bit different from the Soviet model. But in the Soviet Union, the model is also sort of to watch what they call the military specialists, which were like pretty much former czarist officers you know you have these communist party members there to watch these uh, former czarist officers make sure they're they're not you know defecting or try to mount some some coup against the party so yeah this whole system is sort of based on these concerns which in a way you know it's expected in authoritarian systems a lot of times the whole system is built on you know distrust and people watching each other etc etc uh, so even until today, I would say that, you know, when you look at Chinese textbooks regarding political work in the, mil- in the military, it's about, you know, ensuring the party's absolute control, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, you know, perhaps in Western liberal democracies, there's a expectation that the CEO will just, you know, live up to, uh, his oath, but in, in, you know, in, in an authoritarian system, you need this extra layer of security, especially in the military, because the regime survival very much depends on the military. Well, you talk about in the article that the political officers sometimes are operationally qualified. You, you mentioned that they, uh, you know, if they're in a squadron, that they're actually qualified to fly the airplanes and that sort of thing to give them operational experience. So mm-hmm. in terms of a career path, when I'm, and, and I apologize if this is a ham-fisted analogy, but when I get my commission in the PLA, do I select either operational track or political track, or can I free flow between the two along the way, like having shore duty or sea duty or going, 
you know, having a, a, a disassociated tour that we would think of where you can maybe diversify your career track. How does that work? Well, my understanding is that these political officers, political commissars, they were cultivated in their own individual system and uh, transferred to different parts of the PLA. They all went to, you know, political work academy and uh, they come up with a pretty different, with a pretty different experience. You know, I would say that's why now they're, well, even before they, they, they try to get these political officers to, you know, have some experience at the front line and uh, uh, but now especially there's a greater emphasis on these things uh, usually if you are if you're not from that particular system it's hard to it's almost diff very difficult to get in and become a political commissar so this article Mike in a couple places you mentioned uh, some mm. close calls between the, the the Chinese PLA and U.S. military operations. In, in particular, one is the 2018 uh, near near collision between the USS Decatur, DDG 73, and the uh, Chinese destroyer Lanzhou, where the Decatur was conducting freedom of navigation ops, and the Chinese destroyer overtook the U.S. Navy ship and then closed to within 45 yards or so, and Decatur had to take some emergency maneuvers to avoid uh, a collision. And so, um, you know, what came out of this, what comes out of this article is that that operation, the decision to do that, that provocative act, had to involve both the CO of the Chinese destroyer, but also the political commissar and the political commissar's chain of command, his his own individual political chain of command had to approve that, you know, well up the, uh, you know, up the ladder too, right? So can the, in that particular case on board the Lanzhou was the, obviously the political commissar is a member of the Chinese Communist Party, uh, is the commanding officer of the Chinese destroyer also a member of the political of uh, the Chinese uh, Communist Party, or is he probably not a member of the Communist Party? Oh, I, absolutely. In the Chinese military, if you are, if you want to be promoted to even a platoon commander, you must be a member of the party. You know, got like it. You can free float out there as a non-party member because they absolutely they don't trust you. It's very simple to uh, like that. Yeah, got it. So everybody, all the officers are members of the. Chinese Communist Party, but then you have this sort of special elite, if you will, indoctrinated uh, political commissar cadre. Mm -hmm. So maybe we can just talk a little bit about the party standing committee that exists in you know every Chinese military unit, including the PLAN units. So let's say on the, if you have a frigate, you have a party standing committee on board, pretty much uh, sort of governing this entire uh, ship. Um, Pretty much uh, the party standing committee is the supreme decision-making organ in a unit. Uh, it's usually chaired by the unit's political commissar. In some rare occasions, it's chaired by the military commander. So uh, uh, the party standing committee's uh, duties, they include uh, implementing party policies, indoctrinating troops, you know, building up party organs, uh, also, uh, you know, me member, party member management. And also, of course, you want to, you know, the, the committee meets often to uh, design how they're going to achieve uh, work objectives. Uh, and like I said before, they have counterintelligence and uh, public relations duties. So the commissar and the military commander, they share their responsibility under a system is known as the divisional responsibility under the unified collective leadership of the party committee. 
uh, what does this mean? It's pretty much just that, uh, you know, well, the military commander, he assumes responsibility in military affairs. The commissar handles uh, political work. And the two, they must work together within the committee's uh, collectively set goals. It's, it seems like a, quite a complicated system, right? But uh, that's just that's the way things are done in uh, Chinese units. Every, every unit pretty much has something like this. Except the very small, very small, like platoon and squads, they don't have these kind of things. But uh, above that, they do have something like a party standing committee. So if, if I'm a career operator, not a political officer, mm. uh, do I just accept the political side of the house as a fact of life? Am I cynical about it? Do I, is this a forced march with my counterpart on the political side when I have command? Is it lead, follow? For instance, in the Decatur incident, you mentioned in the article that both, and you and Jeff mentioned in the article that most likely both the CO and the commissar rep were on the bridge. But yeah. who's giving rudder orders? Who's, you know, is this the CO with the political officer watching or are they, because to Bill's point to conduct mm. this sort of thing, it, it sort of seems like there's not much agility if you got to get permission up this chain of command, right? So this is long lead planning, like days, if not weeks out that they say, okay, we're going to roll in on a Navy destroyer with, maybe they didn't know it was the Decatur, but the next ship that's operating in this AOR we're going to do this move. So that two weeks out, and then they're like, okay, remember that thing we talked about? We're going to do it. How does this go down, though, specifically? Because I know our listeners, being service warfare officers or maybe also the deck qualified, in their mind as they're thinking about this, you know, you can imagine the chaos on the bridge of Decatur was maybe considerably different, or the atmosphere was considerably different than that on the, the Chinese destroyer. As I mentioned before, you know, they often have these uh, party standing committee meetings on board. So I would say that possibly uh, such, you know, contingencies are discussed during these meetings on, you know, okay, how do we respond to this? But during, uh, say, operations or even, you know, you know in, in, in an uh, emergency situation, uh, the, the military commander can take charge. He has the freedom to command. The... Political commissar can intervene, but honestly, I've never seen any report, especially regarding the Chinese Navy, where the political commissar intervened during, you know, operations uh, on, you know, military officers' decisions. I would say that he probably only intervenes when the officer is doing something like completely ridiculous, you know. But definitely, he will give his tacit consent regarding, you know, how they responded to, uh, you know, in, in, in any particular scenario. Yeah, I guess the political officer would have to submit that the commanding officer's actions were not in the best interest of the party. So that doesn't sound like a tactical matrix. You know, that, that sounds like a 30,000 foot matrix, like long, long lead kind of a thing. So I, I, I get your point with respect to uh, it's, it's not normal that the political officer would, would intervene in a tactical uh, situation. It's in the because in the Chinese system, right? In the military as well, you know, everything is political. You you have to be a political guy. You have to show your loyalty to the party in order to move up. You have to check out, you know, your background, everything, and make sure you're politically clean. 
so in a way, yeah, he's he's a he's a CEO, he's a military specialist, but he's also a political guy as well, but just not as political. The, be, do, you know, being political is not his first job, at, you know, compared to the commissar. Yeah, his first yeah, job is sure. the commanding officer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So so at every level, uh, every echelon, so from a commanding officer of a, a ship or a submarine or a squadron, on up mm-hmm. to like a, a a fleet level commander. There's this commanding officer level, and then there's a political commissar. But the two don't, the two career paths don't mix. They're they're separate but equal. No, no. But now they're trying to encourage the uh, commissar to learn more about combat because, you know, if the 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 rationale is that you cannot really conduct all the political work as a support for the CEO. For example, you cannot really conduct uh, psyops sci- against the enemy you know, during operations if you don't understand combat, right? So that's the thinking behind it. Gotcha. I'm reminded, and I know this is a very loose analogy, but I'm reminded when you describe some of the responsibilities of the political commissars that I, I think uh, on our on a U.S. ship of the XO, the chaplain, the public affairs officer, maybe the command master chief, all of those things kind of mixed together in that political uh, standing committee, right? It's, it's sort of heads of departments, but not the operational side of the, of the ship. It's more of the uh, administrative uh, duties, but then, it, you know, it, it's also much more political. Yeah. Yes. I think the thing about that analogy, Bill, that, that doesn't hold up is the paranoia part, right? You're not afraid of your chaplain. You're, you're not afraid of your PAO. <laughs> You know, uh, and so I think that's the difference culturally. Yeah, that's, a real, that's a good point. You know, yeah. um, and and it, this is this is a guy with a word could end your career. You know, even a, a rumor, an innuendo, or some judgment. So I, I just think you're always watching your back. Again, it's paranoia, and so as we think strategically in the near peer construct, uh, Mike, what do you think? the a, a democracy has in terms of the way it operates its military could be an advantage in terms of agility and how decisions are made in high-end conflict against the the communist construct of the PLA. You said that COs have the authority to act, but do you think there could be some hesitancy baked into the equation that could throw the advantage to the Americans? Yeah, I was just saying that, you know, just imagine if you were your your chaplain can like excommunicate you on the spot, you know. That, <laughs> that's something. Uh, but but yeah, uh, I would say definitely the U.S. Navy, uh, since it employs a single commander system, you know, it's uh, definitely more agile. And during naval combat, that's just critical, right? But the PLAN it commits to a dual commander system, and they announce this proudly in all their publications. You know, they say we we are proud of our dual commander system, and uh, this institutions. Further emphasize, I would say, under the C administration, you know, where the party's leadership role is glorified pretty much, pretty much in all walks. And if you look at some of the Chinese publications, they they talk about how this dual commander system is being reinforced and how is it working, especially on surface units. You know, um, and you just wonder how this will actually play out in a in a real war situation. It must be, it must be a little bit confusing at times, right? But in the past, actually, they did, they did, you know, during their skirmishes in the South China Sea, you know, sort of employ the system. And uh, uh, 
but you know that's about 20 30 years ago that's a long time of 30 40 years ago so you know in future warfare it's definitely a big question mark so i would say you know in theory at least the commissar as the party's you know topmost representative on the ship you know has the power to override decisions of the captain, but you know instances of this occurring have not been reported. They're probably not going to report anything, you know, conflict between the captain and the uh, commissar. But nonetheless, you know, you know, having a powerful counterpart on board definitely sort of constrains the uh, commanding officer's behavior, no doubt. You know, uh, even he has the freedom to command during operations, especially in, in, during emergency situations. His freedom just expands fully. But you always have to something in the back of your mind, right? And I would imagine that in cases where the captain and commissar share good working relations, you know, you probably, the decision-making process would be smooth. But what if, you know, there's personal conflict? Then things are not going to be progressed as, uh, as smooth as you wish, right? And unfortunately, you know, for open sources, they don't report any conflict. They always report, oh, you know, how this guy and this guy are working so well on the party committee, and doing things for the nation, for our party, yada, yada. They don't report any conflict. But, you know, if you look back at historical precedents in the Chinese army, the PLA army, there were instances of these uh, conflict. And uh, usually how they solve the problem is either they do a ballot within the party standing committee. And, you know, if the commissar's ideas win, then go by commissar. If the CEO, if commanding officer win, ideas win, go by the commanding officer or they take it to a, a superior level they ask the superior hey this is my plan this is the commissar's plan which one do you think and they'll just obey the order uh, when they receive it mike one of the questions I, that, that came to my mind is um you know when uh u.s ships pull into a foreign port there's a lot of interaction between navies right and when we do exercises at sea so i'm curious with with the chinese navy when a Chinese Navy ship, you know, goes to visit a foreign country, uh, does the political commissar play a prominent role in the the port visit? In you know, meeting with the the mayor, and or does the political commissar in those kinds of um, situations take a, a sort of a backseat role, kind of a quiet kind of step to the back? And and do they are they sort of surreptitious in where they are on the ship or when they when they you know visit a foreign port, or is it? more presented as almost the two commanding officers. I mean, and I know they're not two commanding officers, but are they both prominently, you know, on the quarter deck? Are they both prominently in meetings with foreign dignitaries or does one play a more prominent role in, in public than the other? Well, that's a very interesting question. I mean, engagements with political officers, political commissars are quite limited, you know, uh, and Especially that it's very difficult to tell if who is he, you know, who because usually they share the same rank, same same grade with the uh, commanding officer, and they, their uniform look. There's no distinction to show that he's a political officer. You know, when I read news reports, yes, they do go out and greet, you know, uh, locals and uh, local counterparts. But in the reports, actually, they highlight, at least the Chinese news reports, that they highlight the commanding officer a bit more than the political commissar. You know, we don't really know what they are doing, you know, during these port calls, even though, you know, some of their their duties include establishing connections with local counterparts for perhaps a future, any potential scenario. I don't know. But in recent years, actually, there's perhaps a way to identify them is that from what I see is that they started wearing this uh, party badge 
Uh, it's very particular badge. It's like there's a red banner, and underneath it, there's a Chinese writing. It says like "Serve the People." I, I saw several interviews with these commissars, and it seems like they all start wearing this badge. You know, under the current regime, where they emphasize a lot on loyalty to the party, right? So perhaps that's a way in the future to identify them, even though previously it's quite difficult. Their role definitely need to be, you know, better investigated. Yeah. Well, we were talking to. Uh Admiral Richard, the STRATCOM commander in the last episode, and Bill asked him if, because when Bill was working in the Pentagon, he, he discovered there wasn't a hotline to Beijing as there was to Moscow. And Admiral Richard says there still isn't, and the Chinese are good with that because they want to maintain a, a level of opaqueness around mm their their visibility and it's that jives with what you're saying about the ability to distinguish the political officer from the the co i think they're comfortable with that you would not be able to know at a glance who the political officer was but let, let me ask for because early on in the show bill was asking if the co was a member of the party and maybe some of our listeners are very unfamiliar with china at all um, so when we say the party, are we talking about loyalty to the president or is there a, a group that is a voting body or, you know, what does that mean when you say loyalty to the party? Is it a cult of personality with uh, President Xi or what what is this that we're talking about that the American listener could understand? Sure. So to put it. Very simply, um, China is a one-party state. Uh, that means, you know, you have the, 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 the nation that's being ruled by this uh, machine, which is the Chinese Communist Party. And there's, no, there's not really any opposition party in China. You, know, you have like a few fake opposition, opposition party, but they all, just, they all support the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, and above this uh, party machine, there's the uh, Politburo Standing Committee. Seven members with Xi as the party secretary. So Xi, through this party machine, rules China. Okay. So if you are a party member, you are uh, loyal to the party as well as this uh, party secretary, the, the guy on top of all things, at the top of the pyramid. Mm. So of course, there's a you know person personality called in China and is growing and. Um, you know, for, for officers to uh, sort of want to get promoted, they have to demonstrate certain levels of political loyalty and uh, even more so under the current circumstances. So is, is, is Z making unilateral decisions? Is he enacting laws? Does it have to go through a vote? You know, I don't he's not a dictator. Um, mm -hmm. uh, so how, how does that apparatus work or is, is the nation do they live in fear of Z, or does he have to, as the party secretary, convince the party of the direction that they should go at any given time? How, how, what's the dynamic there? Well, I mean, you know, in any authoritarian system, your attitude towards the, you know, the boss is always like a mixture of fear and love. Right? Maybe the love is not genuine, but you're sort of like propagated into like loving this person in some way because he he made China strong or, you know, you know, China does not take any you know, offense from any other country, stuff like that. 
But there's also the fear factor. You know, you you you're, you're always have this concern in the back of your mind that you uh, you might mess up. You know, if you say the wrong things. So so I would say that you know there's definitely any any authoritarian system is like that. So for him, if he ruling China is actually how can I say there there's there's all different kinds of laws being passed. Now, recently, there's a political work regulation being passed. You know, some of these are be some of these are. Um, Regulation, intra-party regulations. These are passed by the party organizations. They have these party congresses uh, and then like Politburo decisions, stuff like that. And then you have like laws governing the entire country. These are passed by the rubber stamp parliament. You know, they pretty much if the party recommend a certain law, they'll pass it very quickly. You know, China is pretty much run like uh, like a typical one-party state, and uh, you know the party dominates everything. And if the party want to get something done, usually they can mobilize a ton of resources to get things done. So another point that I think, and, and I'm, I'm sure you'll put a finer point on it for us, Mike, but uh, uh, Xi Jinping, as the head of that Politburo Standing Committee, you mentioned the seven most powerful men uh, in China, right, who make the senior most decisions. Uh, but he's also the head of the Central Military Commission. So he's both the senior party member, the senior politician uh, yep. akin perhaps to the you know the president of the United States, but with much more centralized power than our president has. And he's also you know the, the, the uh, chairman of the Central Military Commission. So he has direct power through both change of chains of command within the, mili- the Chinese military. So head of the operational chain of command and also head of the party chain of command, correct? Right, right, right. So, Pretty much, you know, we call uh, Xi a paramount leader. We also call like uh, Deng Xiaoping and, uh, you know, Jiang Zemin. And then because in China, there's like three top posts they usually control, right? When, uh, if you want to be called a paramount leader, there's the uh, party uh, secretary post, which runs the entire Communist Party. Uh, there's the s- uh, state presidency. Uh, that's why we usually in the Western media, they address Xi as a presidency, you know, that's from his state title that runs pretty much the government. Uh, and uh, also the Central Military Central Military Commission chairman that runs the military. So you have state power, party power, as well as military power. If you have all these three poles, you're considered like a paramount leader. You're, you're pretty much at the pinnacle of everything. For the uh, Central Military Commission, it is actually an organized organization under the Communist Party. So, you know, uh, it's pretty much a way for the party to control the military. But interestingly is that, you know, she, uh, after the previous two leaders, she is the first one to sort of wear this combat uniform much more often. You know, he, he likes to emphasize his previous history as a PLA uh, member, which he served from if I recall correctly, from 1979 to 1982, he was a member of the PLA. He was the one of the personal secretaries to the defense minister at the time. Uh, and after that, he went on to a more civilian career. But it seems like he always t- tend to emphasize, you know, I'm part of the group, I'm part of the gang. And uh, and uh, it was said that, you know, when he first took power, he would spend considerable time, uh, not, not at his office, uh, you know, in the civilian uh, capacity, but... He would spend his afternoon at the uh, CMC headquarters, you know, just to get more acquainted with the military uh, professionals. So that's something that's real different from him. And I would say that he relies on the military quite a lot, you know, initially when he was consolidating, and even until now. Well, these are really interesting points. And, you know, 
when you uh, are in great power competition, when you're concerned about an adversary, the more you know about your adversary, the better off you are. And this is uh, this article called, again, uh, China's Dual, Dual Command at Sea by Captain Jeff Benson, U.S. Navy, and Z Yang, Mike Yang, our guest today. Uh, it's found in the uh, pages of the March issue of Proceedings. Uh, really interesting how it explains that decision-making process within the Chinese military, the Chinese Navy particularly, and how the division of responsibility between the political commissars and the operational commanders go. And uh, Mike, it's been a great conversation. Thanks for being on the show today. Thank you very much. Uh, That wraps up another episode of the Proceedings Podcast. Until next week, remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute.